Hello there. My name is Jamin Melanson, and welcome to my podcast entitled Reclaimed. Over the next several weeks, you will learn about how I have been reclaimed by God, and still am being reclaimed. My hope, however, is not that you will only learn about me, but you'll also learn about yourself. I'll be using personal stories and biblical stories to relate different truths about being reclaimed as we focus on learning humility, integrity, loyalty, and tranquility in our walk with Jesus. So grab your favorite beverage, something to munch on, and join me as we embark on this journey of being reclaimed. Part 3. Reclaimed with Loyalty Nothing is more noble, nothing more venerable than loyalty. Marcus Tullius Cicero Chapter 12, Quest for Perfect Unity All for One and One for All Alexander Dumas and the Three Musketeers On the night before his death, Jesus took his disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane. One of them was not among them as he chose not to be reclaimed with loyalty. Instead, he agreed to betray Jesus over the authorities for 30 pieces of silver. And while Judas was off gathering people to arrest Jesus... Jesus was praying. He prayed three unique prayers in the garden, and they can all be found in John chapter 17. First, he prayed for himself, especially in the hours to come. Second, he prayed for his disciples, even though three of them, Peter, James, and John, were asleep just a few meters away. And third, he prayed for the future believers. I want to focus our time on this third prayer. Starting in verse 20, this is what Jesus prayed. I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me, so they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Father, I want these whom you've given me to be where I am. Then they can see all the glory you gave me because you loved me even before the world began. O righteous Father, the world doesn't know you, but I do. And these disciples know you sent me. I revealed you to them and I will continue to do so. Then your love for me will be in them, and I will be in them. I want you to notice what Jesus did not pray for. He didn't pray for every person to be saved. He didn't pray for large church gatherings. He didn't pray for successful programs. He didn't pray for everyone to go on mission trips. He didn't pray for the church to make lots of money. He didn't pray for people to be healed from sickness. He didn't pray for families to be reunited. He didn't pray for the poor to be taken care of. He didn't pray for the church to pursue justice. He didn't pray for the church to lead community events. He didn't pray for the church to have tons of baptisms. He didn't pray that we would all memorize scripture. And he didn't pray that we'd have the perfect theology. No, he prayed 
May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Now those list of things, I'm not saying they're not important, but he didn't pray for those things because Jesus knew that if we were to live in perfect unity with each other, then those other things, plus so much more, would come to pass as a result of that unity. Now would Jesus pray this if he didn't think it was possible? Of course not. Jesus sincerely believed future believers could live in this perfect unity, and they do so by being reclaimed with loyalty to God and to each other. And this is an important prayer. This is literally one of the last prayers he prays before he goes to be crucified and dies. Some of his last words were focused on the unity of the future church. And for those of us who have been Christians for a while, we know about the passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 where Paul talked about the body of Christ. He highlighted how we are all different yet part of one body. This idea is echoed again over in Ephesians chapter 4 where Paul wrote, Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all, in all, and living through all. The whole purpose of this passage was to remind believers that we are all united in one body under Christ, and He is the head. Through the years, we've made a ton of little bodies with humans taking the headship of those bodies. We've gathered all the parts of the hand and put them in one whole body, and then we gathered all the parts of the ankle and put them in another body, and sometimes two or three body parts will intermingle, but not too much. You see, we hand people don't want to be associated with the ankles because the ankles hold a slightly different belief than us, even though the foundation of the belief is practically the same. I mean, I say that in jest to make a point, but sadly, it's actually quite accurate. The major problem with what I've just said is quite obvious. Look at your body. If all of it was made up of ankles, what would happen, besides being weirded out by such an image? You wouldn't be able to see, couldn't hear, couldn't smell, couldn't taste anything. You'd probably just roll around and miss out on four of the five senses. So then, why do we think it's a good idea to separate the body of Christ into a similar pattern? The church is actually ineffective if you have all the people who stress holiness under one roof and all the people who stress grace under another. In order to have a proper view of holiness, you need to have a proper view of grace, and vice versa. Jesus' prayer for the future church was for it to be perfectly unified, and we've done everything in our power to ensure that that hasn't happened. My team is better than your team. I don't know about you, but I'm a huge sports fan. My favorite hockey team is the Montreal Canadiens, and my favorite football team, as I mentioned earlier in this podcast, is the New England Patriots. Both my teams have very loyal fan bases, though there can be times when they turn on each other. But because being loyal to the team doesn't always mean you're loyal to each other, unfortunately. And at the same time, my teams are also hated by other fans. For Montreal, it comes from a time when they dominated the hockey world and won the Stanley Cup six times from 1971 to 1979. Man, I wish I had been alive during those times. Maybe someday. And then New England is hated because of their recent success of winning six Super Bowls in the last 20 years. I'm sure there are other reasons they're hated, but that's the basics of it. 
and most of the time the rivalries between fans are for fun. I work with a Toronto Maple Leafs fan and we joke around, but at the end of the day we love each other. However, I've seen many times when being a fan of one team turn into a fist fight with a fan from another team. They're fans of the same sport, but because of the logo on the jersey, they don't like each other. They tear each other down, they throw things at the person, they treat them as less than human, using every word in the book. And for what? To make themselves feel better? That's really all it is. There's no reward for being the best fan base. Heck, even if your team, the team you cheer for wins a championship, the fans get nothing. Zilch. Zero. Besides just feeling great that your team won. But yet we act like our team depends on us to defend their honor and fight against all the other fan bases because they aren't as good as us. This type of tribalism makes sports hard to deal with sometimes, and sadly it just doesn't exist in sports. It also exists in the body of Christ. And according to Live Science, there are more than 45,000 denominations or sects of church across the world, which really doesn't amount to being perfectly unified if you ask me. And it isn't an issue to have different focuses, that's okay. The issue arises though when our focus is more on how we are better than the other denominations. This doesn't happen everywhere and it doesn't happen all the time and it's not always present. You know, for the most part, we do get along, but there is a problem when we say things like, well, my church is better than your church. Have you ever stopped to think about how wrong of a statement that is? Like, what makes your church so much better? The songs you sing, your pastor, the people in it, the people not in it? Jesus didn't die so we could compare our churches to one another. He died so the church could be unified in mind and purpose, which is to build the kingdom of God here on earth with Jesus as the head. And sometimes this tribalism even exists within a denomination. There's the in-crowd and then there's the not-in-crowd. People may not use that language, but that's how it plays out. You know, one day you're in the in-crowd and the next day, and people are loyal to you, but then the next day you're told, well, you don't really fit in any longer. And now you're on the outside where loyalty no longer seems to be important. But loyalty is standing by someone in the good and bad times. Choosing who is in and not in isn't loyalty. It's a type of tribalism, and it honestly hurts the gospel. It leads me to ask the following question. Why would someone want to follow Jesus when they see his followers being unloyal to each other? Ragtag Group of Misfits Simon also called Peter, Andrew, Peter's brother, James, the son of Zebedee, John, James's brother, Philip, Nathaniel, also called Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, the tax collector, and also called Levi, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot. Do these names look or sound familiar to you? These are the names of the twelve disciples who Jesus chose to study under him while he was here on earth. There were actually many more disciples. These were just the main twelve. In fact, we do know from other parts of the Gospels that some women also followed Jesus closely. Though they were not numbered among the twelve, these women were held in high honor by Jesus and not treated as second-rate citizens. Luke chapter 8 verses 1-3 to tells us, Soon afterward, Jesus began a tour of the nearby towns and villages, preaching and announcing the good news about the kingdom of God. He took his twelve disciples with him, along with some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Among them were Mary Magdalene, 
from whom he had cast out seven demons, Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's business manager, Susanna, and many others who are contributing from their own resources to support Jesus and his disciples. Now, I'm sure we like to believe that the twelve plus the women following Jesus all got along and sang kumbaya every day, but this was not the case. They had their differences, and like in any situation, those differences led to clashes among the disciples. And some of the differences were extreme. Look at the list again. Matthew was a tax collector, which meant he worked for the Romans, the people who ruled over the Jews, and he made his earnings off the backs of his fellow Jews. And in the eyes of the other 11 disciples, Matthew was not in. He was a traitor and deserved death. And this was especially true of Simon the Zealot. Now, I just want to take a break. I wish that we still use epithets today. They just sound cool. You know, like Alexander the Great, Ivan the Terrible, Richard the Lionhearted. You know, I'd like a cool one, but I'd probably be stuck with like Jamin the Nailbiter or something. Anyways, we have Simon the Zealot, and the term zealot refers to the fact that Simon was a nationalist who wanted to fight back against the Romans and reclaim the land of Israel. Matthew was everything Simon hated. They were not buddy-buddy at first. In fact, though, I like to imagine that when Jesus sent out the disciples two by two, he chose Simon and Matthew to be partners. Just makes sense in my mind. And it's possible, though there isn't any biblical proof of this, that some of the disciples didn't want the women joining them. Jewish women were not taught the Torah, which is the Jewish law, and they were not asked to study under rabbis, which were Jewish teachers of the law. Yet here they were learning under Jesus. And then, in Matthew 20, 20-28, James and John's mother decide to ask Jesus if her two sons could sit on the right and left of Jesus in his kingdom. This was basically asking for her sons to be held in higher esteem than the other ten disciples. And when the other disciples found out, they were indignant. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. I'm sure there's some heated moments in the discussion that followed it, but then... Jesus took it as a teaching moment, and he said this, But among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. Jesus was trying to teach the disciples and those who followed him a new way of living. He knew they had their differences. He knew they weren't always going to agree and get along. He knew some of them had hatred towards one another. He even knew some of them saw themselves as more important than women. And Jesus knew all this. Yet still he chose them. Why? Because this new way of living was Jesus teaching them about the quest for perfect unity. And perfect unity is achieved when people are reclaimed with loyalty to one another. And the only way for the disciples to be reclaimed with loyalty was to see their differences, look past them, and work towards building God's kingdom here on earth together. And when I think of unity, I think of a wolf pack. Wolves have been my favorite animals for as long as I can remember, and I can't really tell you why. The infatuation started when I was young and continued on through the years. If you come over to our house, you'll see that I have a bunch of wolf, wolf memorabilia. I have blankets, clothes, books, pictures, stuffed animals, a small figurine given by a friend, and even a flask with howling wolves on it. It was a gift for standing with him at his wedding, and I don't even drink, but that's what made the gift even more amazing. But wolves are loyal to one another because they know they need each other to survive. Despite their differences, they are unified as one pack. It doesn't mean there are never any problems or issues. There always will be. 
But when those issues arise, the pact deals with them together to keep the unity. It isn't about who's in and who isn't in. That concept doesn't exist because the focus is on the pack as a whole. And that is true loyalty. Living in harmony. Another word to describe being loyal in unity is harmony. We tend to think of harmony as meaning there's no conflict. It's a type of Zen level of perfection. However, harmony means that unity is maintained in the midst of conflict or disagreement. When Jesus prayed his prayer in the garden, he wasn't praying that the future church would agree all the time. That would have been a foolish prayer. The disciples didn't even agree all the time, and there were only 12 of them. Later on in the chapter about the body of Christ, though, Paul talked about how the church was full of people with different gifts. People with the gift of teaching were not more important than those who did miracles, and those who prophesied were not more important than those who spoke in tongues. They were all important to the body of Christ. And guess what? They still are. Our differences are what makes the body of Christ unique. There may be times when a specific body part is more needed, but it's not more important. For example, if you need to see something, your eyes are the most needed body part. But if all you do is see, and you can't go with to it or you can't touch it, what good are the eyes? And I'm going to be honest with you, I'm not a huge fan of the denominational divide. I believe it's counterintuitive to our pursuit of unity and harmony and loyalty. I understand there are times when division needs to happen, like when foundational beliefs are completely different, and no, I'm not going to list those. It's not meant to divide the body when one's stance on baptism may be slightly different than someone else, though. Just because we have a different opinion about something doesn't mean we have to start a whole new denomination. I wish I had an answer on how to fix this, because as a man I like to fix things, but I have no answer for this. My only response is to encourage you to wrestle with it on your own. One of the things I do is I stopped introducing myself with my Wesleyan background. It isn't like I hate where I come from, I don't, I have a lot of respect for it. But I don't belong to John Wesley. He isn't my savior, he isn't my lord, and he isn't my king. Jesus is. I'm his. And so that's what I tell people. I follow Jesus. Not John Wesley, not John Calvin, not Billy Graham, not Martin Luther. Jesus. And those four names I listed, they probably want you to follow Jesus more than follow them. Earlier in 1 Corinthians, Paul tackled this idea. In chapter 3, verses 4 to 7, he says, When one of you says, I am a follower of Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, aren't you acting just like the people of this world? After all, who is Apollos and who is Paul? We are only God's servants to whom you believe the good news. Each of us did the work the Lord gave us. I planted the seed in your hearts, and Apollos watered it. But it was God who made it grow. It's not important who does the planting or who does the watering. What's important is that God makes the seed grow. So next time you're tempted to use your denominational background as some badge of honor, I challenge you to think before you speak. The church doesn't need to be divided by these barriers. Christ's final prayer was for us to be united in loyalty, which leads to harmony. And if we aren't loyal to one another, we can't be united. And if we can't be united, we can't live in harmony. And harmony is truly the end goal. A place where Christians can agree and disagree, but yet still be of one mind under Christ. This idea is spread all throughout the Bible. 
Romans 12.16 says, Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Don't be conceited. 1 Peter 3.8 adds, Finally, all of you should be of one mind. Sympathize with each other. Love each other as brothers and sisters. Be tenderhearted and keep a humble attitude. Colossians 3.14 Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. And then Psalm 133 verse 1 How wonderful and pleasant it is when brothers live together in harmony. This last verse inspired the motto of Palmyra in my book series. People in Palmyra say, when parting ways. And though not a literal translation, I used part of the Hebrew language as a made-up language in my world to convey this idea. In my books, means harmony of kin. That's what the literal translation of it is in my books. Now, the direct translation of the common language in my books is how pleasant it is for humanity to dwell in harmony. May this be the cry of the church. May it be our desire to dwell in harmony with one another. May it be our desire to be reclaimed with loyalty and unity. May we be like wolves and be united as a pack. As a whole, the global church needs to be better at this. And I believe we're heading in that direction. On a personal level, we as followers of Jesus need to be better at it though. Do we talk down about people from other denominations? I know I've been guilty of that at times and it needs to stop. Do we claim our way is the only way? That's a dangerous path. Jesus is the only way. Do we only hang out with people from our denomination because it's comfortable? Well, maybe it's time to become a little uncomfortable. Do we pursue unity with people that attend the same gathering as yes? If not, how then can we pursue unity with others? We must first be loyal to those around us before we can be loyal to anyone else. The Church of Christ will only be effective when we are reclaimed with loyalty. And so how will you pursue this quest for perfect unity? Thank you for joining me this week on Reclaimed and digging into the quest for perfect unity. How did God speak to you today? I encourage you to let someone know how he did. Because being reclaimed by God only works when we're open with ourselves and with others. May the Lord be with you this week. I'm looking forward to having you join me next week as we talk about the highest form of thought. Hanei Akhmatov, my friends. We will see you soon. Godspeed. Some resources for you to dig into connected with this chapter is The Infinite Game by Simon Sinek, Until Unity by Francis Chan, and The Basis of Christi- Christian Unity by Martin Lloyd-Jones.